right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. How's it going? Everybody good? I'm all right, I guess. I don't know why I can't change. There's some things I can't change. Aaron Sorkin is uh, my guest today. We recorded the conversation upstairs at the Schubert Theater in New York City, where To Kill a Mockingbird is currently running. We recorded it a while back. I did want to put this out there before I, you guys get to that. Uh, there's a lot of conversation about the screenwriter and novelist uh, William Goldman, who was a, a mentor to, uh, to Aaron Sorkin. Uh, he passed away. Uh, William Goldman passed away about a week after Aaron and I had this conversation. Great writer. Great guy, apparently, according to Aaron. But I just wanted you to know that Aaron was not being glib and not recognizing his passing, obviously. It was because this was recorded a couple months ago. All right? You got that? That that I just need you to know that. For those of you who have been like, wow, he seems sort of kind of like he's just uh, not acknowledging it. That's because it hadn't happened, the sad passing of Mr. Goldman. Uh, that said, I'm also beginning, I've, I've just done, I don't know how it went yet because I'm recording this before I do it, but last night was the first of the series of shows I'll be doing at Dynasty Typewriter here in Los Angeles. If you'd like to come, there's dates up on the website at wtfpod.com slash tour. Uh, I'm doing a series, I, I think I'm doing five uh, including last night. Let's see, yeah. So it'll be February 10th, February 17th, February 24th, and March 17th uh, here in Los Angeles at a small uh, theater called the Dynasty Typewriter. You can go to wtfpod.com slash tour to get tickets for those shows. All right? That's out there. Also, I guess I can go ahead and push the other dates. Wheeler Opera House, Aspen, Colorado, March 23rd, and Boulder Theater in Boulder, Colorado on March 24th. All right? Okay, I, all right, I'll be honest with you. All right. I just, I've gotten myself just all strung out again. I'm just, like, I'm, I'm doing nicotine lozenges, and I'm on about a gallon of black tea a day. I'm just like, and, and I'm, it's amazing because I'm sitting around and I'm wondering, why am I so anxious? Why am I so jacked up all the time? Why am I so fucking aggravated? And I just refuse to acknowledge what's causing it. I mean, seriously, this is a, it's just patterns, man. It's patterns. I mean, I'm like, I'm a, I'm a caffeine and nicotine sponge that I have to keep soaked all day, every day, all the time. I am a nicotine and caffeine sponge. I have figured out a way to ride a tea high, a loose tea high. And, you know, I was a while back. I think I told you about it. I was smoking a few cigars. I don't do it socially. I do it. I don't do it for affectation. I do it for the buzz. And I was doing, I was doing two or three a day. And I'm like, fuck this. I got to get back on the lozenges to get off the cigars. And now I'm just fucking soaked in it cellularly soaked nicotine and caffeine but i just it, it it takes me forever to realize that's it man that's it and that that 
in and of itself is the beautiful denial mind inside the addict head. Anything to protect my desire to stay jacked, to protect my process. This is my process. This is my job is to figure out how to stay jacked and ride that high, ride that balance between caffeine and nicotine without coffee. So there's a lot of exotic teas going on. Many different kinds. Today, today I have had uh, Earl Grey, Irish breakfast, Earl Grey creme, and now I'm, I'm doing English breakfast. And these are two cup glasses, 12 ounce motherfuckers. Oh my God, why do I keep doing this? It's just, oh, you know, there's, there's time in between, but Jesus, I always get to this point. I mean, why keep doing it if it is clearly uncomfortable? Good question. Well, at least that's consistent. That must, it's the consistency of the discomfort, right? But also it's the habit, the ritual. I mean, tea, like if you get into it, it's got a lot of, you know, got, you got certain strainers, you got, you know, teaspoons, how much steam in the milk, got an amazing frother. I they don't even make it anymore. I think it's a Norelco frother and I, it's the best thing. So I'm frothing putting that in the tea it's just the habit the ritual man it's just the what it really is it's the discomfort that you experience without anything but then you add that layer of festering the festering festering for the relief and then the relief getting well and you just like you you earn it you earn it by needing the shit i mean thankfully it's just this shit, not other shit, but it's just, man, it's just round and round patterns of life circling the drain and I'm the drain, the hole. Come on. God, I got to get it from the outside. I can't get it from the inside, right? I mean, do we really change? That, I mean, I'm 55 and that's what, like, I've been beating the shit out of myself lately. Do we really change? Can we really change? I think yes. The bottom line is eventually we get tired, right? You get tired of the repetition, tired from age, tired from the distractions, and eventually something gives or we just give up. Then we change, relax, uh, humbled, or we just, or, or maybe just don't do things anymore. We just, that's really, I think, the most obvious way that you change we stop ourselves from taking the action from saying the thing from making the face you stifle yourself right that's a learned thing it's called behaving yourself so so that's changing right you can change by knowing your choices and making the right one but see even that that can get exhausting right indecision then you're back to giving up tired letting go fuck man too thinky i just it's just like the longer you live the clearer it becomes that change is just sometimes this gradual thing and has nothing to do with anything but age and being humbled by the wheel of time which is good it's good let it happen be aware of it conserve that energy you have left for the last few laps and you know 
and you know sex and running and and uh, engaging in what your passions are if you know what they are i'm not yeah i don't want this to be a cynical dark thing because i'm not always aware of that man i'm just <laughs> just going fast going fast all the time yeah i just uh I just backed my car. It was rainy and I backed my car into another car and I dented it. The plastic bumper just buckled in. Just, is that the word? Just kind of, just kind of, it's just, it's dented, but it's plastic. I Maybe it'll pop out. I don't know, man. It's just, I can't, I can't have nice things. I turn everything to shit within months or days even new boots i fuck those up i get shit on them somehow scratch them up new car i just i have no luck with that i just have no luck with it i don't i don't know that i have gen, i don't know if i have generally i don't have good luck in general i know that about myself i think the only luck that i really had to be honest with you was the timing of this podcast Oddly, Aaron Sorkin talks a bit about luck and about patronage and about, it's just, if if you really think about your life, I don't know what life you're living, but I know this from, from both sides of it, that uh, when you think about people who have helped you along during the way, why would they do that? It's weird that, that most of the time, the things that change your life are just people that choose to, to to show up for you somehow or to to give you time to give you attention to give you some sort of um lesson but they don't have to do that it's weird because i experience it now people approach me for advice and you know i don't what do i know what do i know fucking about anything i know what i did i know how you know what happened to me but there's no system to it but you know if i think about the people when i was wandering through trying to figure out who I was. I mean, I had teachers that were impressive, but that, like uh, there was a guy who owned a bookstore, Gus, and I, I don't know why he chose to talk to me, but he did, and he changed my life. I don't know if it was effortless on his part or if I was annoying or something, but he didn't have to do it. And, it, and it's sort of like, the, like even meeting my producer, Brendan McDonald. We did a radio show together, and then we just, it just, we ended up working together now for, for almost a decade on this show. And then another you know, bunch of years before that is the word, is it fortuitous? Is that the word? Yeah, I think that's the word there. You, if you really look at these moments in your life, now they, I guess these can cut either way, really. <laughs> they can be bad luck or good luck. I, yeah, I've had my share of both, but the fortuitous moments are usually relationships. They're meetings. They're people that change your life. And they don't have to, but sometimes they do. Yeah, you should have gratitude for that. You know? Because if you've got the goods, that doesn't necessarily mean it's enough. Whatever the goods you have. I'm not an advice guy, but I'll tell you, man... Yeah, you can do all the work. You can put all the work in and it might not manifest, man, because you need you need you need someone to go, "Let me help you out. Let me give you a leg up." Or you need that weird bit of timing where you just sort of like you you got in the pocket. 
the best luck we ever had was we put this podcast up when the landscape was pretty sparse. It was still sort of the wild frontier. There had been podcasts generation before, and we got in the game, and we kind of carved out our niche, and it, it had an impact, and it it inspired a lot of other people, and and it that just that timing was good. The cosmic timing of my incredible bottoming out financially and emotionally just happened to coincide with the amazing opportunity of uh, getting this thing out there. That was fortuitous. But there's also those relationships like with uh, my producer, Brendan, or you know people I've met in my life. A lot of times those are work relationships. A lot of times you have belief in each other and you, know, you want to work together. But sometimes there's just some people that drop into your life. They don't have to help you. They don't know that they're helping you. And they f- change the entire fucking direction of it. Thank those people if you know who they are and you still can. So as I said before, uh, I talked to Aaron Sorkin at the theater in New York. The Schubert Theater was upstairs in a very sort of nice, antique, old room that uh, I believe it was the Schubert family. It was the main guy's office or one of their the brother's apartment. I, I don't know, but it was it was old timey and, and old New York. And and it was very exciting to be in the structure. And I didn't know what to really expect from Aaron. I, 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 I always assume rarely do I make assumptions that are correct. I thought he would be intimidating. I thought he would be um, uh, uh, hard to uh, to sort of connect with, but it was not the case. He seemed to be very humble and very engaged, you know, and talking about this play, which is, you know, still obviously very relevant. And, you know, certainly on this day, Martin Luther King's day, something to remember is that uh, equality exists and that intolerance that well, that's that's the thing, really. You know, not just equality, but tolerance is necessary for democracy to function. You know, and whatever you think is going on in this country, whether you're like, eh, it's never really been a democracy, or you believe in it, the, the the thing that seems to have gone by the wayside with this administration, with this monster, uh, and his type of I, I don't need I don't even think I don't think you can call it leadership his example is that tolerance is no longer necessary that you can say what you feel if you feel hate and you feel racism or you feel sexism or you feel um, that you're being uh, constricted by diversity you should just say it and act on those impulses Tolerance of diversity is necessary. Tolerance of people in general is necessary for democracy to work. It just is. But now we live in an age where many people, too many, are tired of it. They've exhausted themselves of their ability to be tolerant, which is a, you know, it's a learned thing. And it's a good thing to know and have and eventually feel. Look, this conversation with Aaron, you know, covers a little bit about the play, a little bit about his life, a little bit about politics here and there. Obviously, the themes of To Kill a Mockingbird are totally relevant today. The play was terrific. And uh, as I said earlier, uh, we talked a lot in this conversation about William Goldman, who passed away 
about a week after we had uh, this conversation. To Kill a Mockingbird, starring Jeff Jeff Daniels uh, and written by Aaron Sorkin, based on Harper Lee's book, is now playing on Broadway. Uh, I would highly recommend it. And this is me talking to Aaron Sorkin. The, the fucked up thing about it is like, uh, is that you wake up and you look at that news and you have to realize like, I still have to have a fucking day. That's right. You know, like, what what do I do now? Right. Listen, here's, yeah. here's my thing. Okay. Um, one day Trump is going to not be president. Whether yeah. it's two years from now or four years from now, or, or rather six years from now, or, uh, or, 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 <laughs> We're two, hoping. or, or two weeks that, from now. We're hoping that we, it doesn't change so drastically that right. he, he, he's there for much longer. What then do we do about the tens of millions of people who voted for him? You know, his whole campaign uh, began with our worst problem is political correctness, right? Yeah. And our worst problem is everybody's too polite. Um, and, and I understand that political correctness uh, can be irritating sometimes, but that's probably the worst thing it is, and it's certainly a silly thing to, uh, to base a presidential campaign on. Right. But as long as it's on the table, isn't the worst form of, or the most dangerous form of political correctness right now not calling out America's epidemic of dumbness? I know um, that we have a huge, huge dumb problem that is... A, a, a plain threat to national security. And the only thing I can think of to combat that is, well, we have to take teaching civics seriously. You know, it has to be taught the way we taught math, teach math. And, and, I, and I think that people are starting to catch on to this. Every time I hear uh, the word strategy applied to anything that Donald Trump does, there, there is no strategy. He's not playing a game of chess. It's exactly what it looks like. It's, it's a man with an observable psychiatric disorder, which I also understand that we're yeah. not because we're not doctors. We're not supposed to say it. Right. But you know, you, I'm, I'm a parent. Every parent knows isn't a doctor and can say my kid is sick and can't go to school today. Yeah. Uh, you don't need to be a doctor to recognize when someone is bleeding or someone is limping, and you do not need to be a doctor to recognize that the man has a serious psychiatric disorder and is stupid as hell. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know what we do about the dumb problem uh, because that that's the last PC wall to come down. Right. Uh, I, I didn't like it when Democrats jumped up and down on Hillary Clinton for a basket of deplorables. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a... Um, Honest. Self-evidently truthful statement. Yeah. The problem with the dumb problem is now with conspiracy theories and the access to the Internet and the sort of weird, almost uh, spiritual satisfaction that they get from the closure that uh, conspiracy theories provide them is that there's an empowered dumbness is that now they're just putting those things in their head and they're like, I got an answer that this false equivalency is masquerading as intelligence. That's exactly right. Um, uh, It's all about the... uh, the the unseen unnamed they yeah um, right. they do this they right. want this uh, uh, this idiot notion of the deep state um, uh, the, the crazy conspiracies that are gonna get somebody killed uh, if they haven't already you know a guy showed up to the a pizza synagogue. place uh, uh, with a gun to the synagogue um, it's so funny as a lefty guy who had a, a different they. 
Yeah. Right. That, uh, you know, you know, that whatever my assumptions about deep state were, you know, when it's started to be revealed that there wasn't one, I was a little disappointed. Like, I, <laughs> I felt like all the weird CIA conspiracies we had when we were kids, it's sort of like, well, why aren't they doing something? Well, as a lefty who had that, they, how do you feel when um, suddenly the right is accusing an organization like the FBI of being run by the liberals? Yeah. Um, it's crazy. Uh, yeah. Because we always thought the CIA, which were up to no good to begin with, and you know, taking and making assassinations, restructuring uh, foreign governments or whatnot, mm-hmm. that like I thought, well, if those are the same ones, and they're pissed off about Trump, they should do something about it. And when they failed, I'm like, no, oh, fuck, there's no they, is there? <laughs> Why are some people? Um, I, I am. I, I grew up surrounded by people smarter than I am. Um, Where was this? Uh, 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 just up in Scarsdale in, in Westchester. Everyone in my family uh, was smarter than I am. My circle of friends, they were smarter than I am. I, I mean, in measurable ways. Um, I, I think I was the mascot or something yeah. uh, in the group. Right. And smart people don't make me feel dumb. Um, I, I, I don't resent it. I, I enjoy it. I'm oh, entertained yeah, by it. And the characters, I, I, you know, some people, uh, uh, some writers write characters who are, who are tougher than they are, cooler than they are. Yeah. Have superpowers where they don't. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I write characters who are smarter than I am. Yeah. Uh, I always enjoy the sound of smart people arguing. Have you thought about it this way? That kind of thing. So what is the difference in, between people who, uh, who, who admire smart people who want the president of the United States uh, to be smarter than they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, That gives them a feeling of security and people who are, who hate people who are smarter than they are. Yeah. Um, uh, What's the difference between I want Barack Obama and I want Donald Trump? Well, I think there's something about the people who trust their guts that there's a, a sort of like, uh, you know, like, I got good instincts. I know better for me. You know, we, we've always done it this way. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it was just a matter of time before these smarties fucked everything up and we can finally show them how it's really done. Well, I think that you've put your finger on something. I think, by the way, that, that uh, uh, I think that George W. Bush and Donald Trump did not get elected for the same reasons uh, at all. No. I think with W, there was a guy you want to have a beer with factor. No. And I think with Donald Trump... First of all, the man was not elected because he tapped into the anxiety, the economic anxiety of the forgotten middle class. He has never mentioned ever the economic anxiety of the forgotten middle class. He only ever talks about himself or his enemies, ever. Right. Um, Donald Trump, I think, simply was an excellent stick with which to poke liberals in the eye. Oh, absolutely. And I think that it's not about hope. It's not about... um being uplifted. I think the nihilism at the core of it all, that there's Mm -hmm. enough people in this country for whatever reason have been shattered uh, spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically that they're at the core of it is like, fuck them. Let's get it over with. Well, there's, and now I'll bring it to To Kill a Mockingbird. There's a moment uh, in the second act when Jeff, when Atticus uh, snaps uh, and says to Bob Ewell, um, I mean, through gritted teeth, um, uh, there's nothing I can do about your debilitating inferiority complex, and I've decided it's no longer my problem. 
I think that there are millions and millions of people in this country who have a debilitating inferiority complex that all they can think is you think you're better than me. You think you're better than me. Um, uh, uh, you look down your nose at us people in the flyover states. Um, and if you think that way, it will eat you alive and you will uh, elect Donald Trump. No, no, I think that's absolutely right. I, wa- I, sh- I saw the show last night. I thought it was great. Thanks. Like, it, you know, it was one of those moments where they're... they're it brought a lot of clarity to you know both sides of the struggle in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was at least um, a bit humanizing of that side. Yeah, and and that must have been a struggle. Um, it, it listen, uh, it it wasn't uh, a struggle to humanize the other side. The play doesn't forgive the other side. That's right. Uh, it's not yeah. apologizing for the other side. It's I guess put, that's it's right. putting a human face yeah. on the other side. Right. But there's like there's moments in it that I was going to ask you about because, you know, I'm a smart guy, but yes, I, I don't I don't know that I've read the book and I'm not sure I saw the movie. So <laughs> I'm, I'm literally coming to the story through your show in, in a lot of ways. That was mm-hmm. my first full experience of the story of, of Atticus and, and the story of the of the of To Kill a Mockingbird. Now, my question is how much because I know obviously the the timing of this is is. Essential. I mean, you yeah. made a decision that, you know, this was the adaptation you were going to make because it spoke to what we're going through. Yes. And what was that process? That process was this. First of all, um, uh, it, it it's interesting talking to somebody who didn't walk into the theater with any preconception of None. what was going to happen. And Ask me what you need. Yeah, yeah I'd love to. Um, uh, the process was this. The, 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 the first thing I did uh, was... Uh, my first draft wasn't good at all uh, because all I did was really was take the book, kind of take the best of the book, the the all star scenes, yeah, um, uh, stand them up, and and say it was a play, uh, and it 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 was a it was a greatest hits album done by a cover band, yeah. Uh, the really the the best you could say about it was that it was harmless, which is the I think the worst thing you could say about a play, right. Uh, and it was uh, our producer, Scott Rudin, uh, who gave me the following note. Atticus can't be Atticus for the entire play. He has to become uh, Atticus. Uh, and I thought, you know, that's obvious, of, of course. Uh, I, I understand plays. The protagonist uh, has to be put through something. He has to have a flaw and he has to be changed uh, by the end of the play. How did Harper Lee get away with having Atticus be the same person for the entire book? How did Horton Foote, who wrote the movie, get away with having Gregory Peck be the entire person, uh, be the same person for the entire movie? And the answer was, well, Atticus isn't the protagonist in the book uh, or the movie. Scout, um, uh, his daughter is. And Atticus is a kind of father-knows-best godlike figure. Yeah. In the book and in the movie, Atticus has the answers. In the play that I wrote, he struggles with the other questions I wanted him to be uh, the I wanted him to be the protagonist yeah so I needed to give him a flaw and what would that be um, uh, h- how do you take one of the most iconic characters in literature who has no flaws uh, and give him a flaw and expect to get out alive uh, well so I reread the book uh, for the 19th time now and uh, and something really struck me it Atticus keeps saying to his kids that there's goodness in everyone, that to really understand somebody, you got to crawl around inside their skin yeah. for a while. 
He defends Bob Ewell, who's a member of the Klan, by saying you got to understand he just lost his WPA job. He defends this woman, Mrs. Henry DeBose, who is uh, just the most cruel kind of old lady racist. you got to understand she's sick. She stopped taking her morphine recently. He even tries to defend the jurors. Um, uh, who They're neighbors. Yeah, there are friends and neighbors. We've got to understand them. This is the Deep South. It's just going to take time, okay? It's, it's just going to take time. Um, and I thought, I don't, I'm not sure I buy that. And I hate to say it, but it sounds an awful lot like there were fine people on both sides. Right. Um, and there, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this thing that when we were taught the book in seventh, eighth, or ninth grade, that we were always taught was a virtue. And I'm going to challenge those beliefs in the play. And by the time Atticus gets to the end of the play, uh, he is going to come to the point where he realizes that what he considers, what what you and I might consider, a kind of liberal high-mindedness, that we're going to understand everyone, um, is bullshit. Uh, and um, and there are sometimes times when you just have to roll up your sleeves and fight. Uh, and it was just serendipitous that we have this president um uh right now you were you were start you started working on this before trump i started working on it before trump and when trump was uh, uh not before he started running before right. he was inaugurated yeah um i and but it was definitely this new world that we're living in that fueled this play this classic piece of literature um where there is no event that happens in the play that doesn't happen in the book. I haven't made up new right. events. We just look at it uh, a different way, and we, uh, I just, I press on different things. Yeah, I mean, because I found that to, because I've been dealing with some of that myself. Maybe you have as well. The idea that that, and it's a, it's a, a liberal idea. Uh, maybe not. It might even. Be, I think it's probably a Christian idea that there there is good in everybody. Mm-hmm. Because like you start to think like. If that's how, but that may be true. But if it's so easy to brainwash so many people simultaneously, yes. Um, listen, I I believe that there's no such thing as, as a baby who's born bad. Um, right. Uh, I I think that our instincts uh, are good. Our instincts might lean toward greed. Yeah. Uh, uh, probably seven deadlies. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh. But not evil. Right. Uh. Yeah. Right. It, Unless you commit to them shamelessly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> They're supposed to be there as a check. They're right. like one of the checks on humanity. Uh, now, listen. Yeah. We, you, you got to take the bitter with the better. Um, uh, because we liberals, we, we want people, for instance, to understand that uh, a lot of crime is the product of poverty. Uh, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and there are plenty of people who say, I, I don't need to understand anything. Um, uh, they committed a crime, they go to jail forever or just kill them, uh, okay? Um, uh, but you and I, we want people to understand there's a, a problem that caused this that wasn't their fault. Uh, so we ought to be able to say the same thing uh, about every single person who voted for Donald Trump. But I have a hard time doing that. I need someone to help me get there. Well, there's a problem of rationalization, justification, you know, uh, apologize. Like, I, I've gotten to the point where on stage I say, like, I think at this point 
if there's still people in your family that you know are, are somehow still supporting this mm-hmm. for whatever reason, you they're shitty people. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Um, I, and they are shitty people. And they, and like I said, it's it, generally the motivation behind it. And I think, listen, I think everything you need to learn about why someone is drawn to Donald Trump yeah. can be learned. You don't, It doesn't even need to be five minutes. Three minutes reading the comments section at Breitbart. Oh my God. Okay. And Any comment section. Get a full education <laughs> of, uh, of the emotion behind this. Donald Trump hates the people they hate. He hates me and you. Yeah. They hate me and you. Yeah. Donald Trump makes us crazy. They're all for that. But then, but then, like the liberal, the the, the psychologically and intellectually, the place the liberal goes in a way is like, well, they hate themselves, and we haven't really addressed that. Psychologically, the place the liberal goes is uh, is the economic anxiety um, uh, that the coastal elites yeah. don't understand the yeah. shrinking middle class. Yeah. Uh, I understand it. Yeah. Um, uh, perfectly. I, I'm capable of empathy w- without yeah. the experience. Right. I, I get it. Yeah. But then I ask, why isn't Bernie Sanders the president of the United States? Yeah. He was the one talking about the shrinking middle class. It's got nothing to do with that. It was entirely emotional. Now, there's something else in the and also, play. They, they also think, a lot of them think like, well, I can be Donald Trump. Yeah, that's maddening as well. And and this notion of if if he's able, yes, if he's able to be a billionaire, he can make me a billionaire too. If he's able to uh, create a successful company, he can run the country. One thing has absolutely nothing to do with the other. The United States yeah. is, is not a private family company. Um, what were you going to say about the play? I was going to say this about the play. Suddenly, once I, I kind of turned this corner with, yeah. uh, oh, here's a, 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 a new way to, to dramatize this story. Suddenly, it was like Harper Lee throughout the book was foreseeing the future and leaving these clues to stuff. Boo Radley, um, uh, who's an incredibly important character, though we never see him until the very end uh, of the play, but he's talked about a lot. Uh, Boo Radley, everybody in town knows his name. Everybody is terrified uh, of him. Uh, you know, He lives in a kind of haunted house. He, he's got this mysterious history, which is mostly rumor. Um, but she says in her description of Boo Radley, one of the things that Harper Lee said, and it's, and it's in the play, is that from time to time, these crimes would be committed uh, in town, like terrible crimes, like chickens would be mutilated yeah. uh, and things like that. And anytime it would happen, Harper Lee says, people would always blame Boo Radley, even when it would be proven that it was Crazy Carl uh, uh, who did it, people would still say it was Boo Radley. Well, that sounded exactly to me like immigrants. Um, uh, that even when we're told that an undocumented immigrant is considerably less likely to commit a crime than someone who's born here, we are still told to be afraid of these immigrants because uh, they're committing these crimes, that the facts just don't matter. Uh, so I thought, uh, you know, my fear was, will, will this thing be as, as relevant in, in 2018 as it was in 1960? Because we've, we've come a long way in 58 years. I think it's more relevant now than it's ever been. Yeah. Uh, to kill a and and in, in how much did you, in the cross-examination scenes where, where, I don't know if it's cross-examination or just the initial questioning that, you know, when, when, um, at, when Jeff Daniels as Atticus is questioning Ewell. Mm-hmm. 
Now, did you, how much of that dialogue is informed by what, exactly what's happening now? Did you add the Semitic stuff? Did you add? I added the Semitic stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, it, uh, like you might have a little Jew in you, that kind of stuff. Might have a little Jew in you is yeah. the glasses, the condescension, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, uh, that kind of thing. I noticed we're both wearing the same glasses. Oh, not today. No, we're yeah. different. Um, uh, I added that in. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure why exactly it was important to me. It might be because I felt like um, I want to throw my lot in with the marginalized uh, uh, people in this. In no, this I don't place. think it's off. I think it's I think it's part of uh, historical. Yeah. Uh, stereotyping that that feeds this machine like i just my friend the novelist sam whipsite we had a conversation he's a very brilliant guy funny guy yeah but we had the same realization like i didn't quite understand why those guys at charlottesville were saying the jews will not replace us is that because they think that the the sort of liberal democratic global order is about taking away all national boundaries and it's so it's a puppet master thing you know and i never put that together Growing up. Um, in Scarsdale. In Scarsdale. Uh, and then I went to school in upstate New York. And yeah. then I moved here uh, uh, to Manhattan to, to start my life as a struggling writer. Movies took me to L.A. Um, uh, but um, I'm thrilled to be back. In Always a writer? When I was in high school, uh, I thought I was going to be an actor. Yeah. Um, and for me, writing was just a chore to be gotten through right. uh, for a school assignment. I'd never yeah. written for pleasure before. Right. Um, and then... Uh, well, it was right after I got out of college. Um, uh, I came to New York. I was living in a tiny, very, very tiny studio apartment with my ex-girlfriend. I don't mean that she's my ex-girlfriend now. I mean, she was my ex-girlfriend then. Right. Dating my best friend. But for $250 a month, I could sleep on her futon. Uh, and quietly out. suffer? Yeah. <laughs> well, you listen to them fuck in the other room? They, happily, they did that at his place. Okay. Um, <laughs> One weekend, yeah. uh, one Friday, a friend of mine I went to high school with had with him his grandfather's semi-automatic typewriter. Mm. Um, this was l- literally weeks before the Mac was introduced. A yeah. computer just called the Macintosh. Right, the 127, the little... It was 128K, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, I had one, Greeting yeah. cards have more right. power than this thing had, but we thought it... it it's amazing. It was, yeah. Um, Cut uh, and paste was just amazing. If man, if you're a writer, cut and paste is That's fantastic. All you and look, just the delete key. Yeah, you know, yeah. before that, it was uh, either white out or that tape. Um, anyway, he had his grandfather's semi-automatic typewriter, which electric keys and a manual return. He was going out of town with his girlfriend. He didn't want to schlep it with him. He asked me if I could hang on to it. Mm. My roommate, ex-girlfriend, she was out of town for the weekend, and it was one of these Friday nights in New York that everybody has experienced. It just feels like everybody you know has been invited to a party you yeah. haven't been invited to. Yeah. I didn't have $3 in my pocket, yeah. and for some reason, nothing in this tiny apartment was that, that requires electricity was working. That, not the television, not the stereo. Um, the only thing that was working was this semi-automatic typewriter. And I stuck a piece of paper in it uh, and began for the first time ever writing dialogue, which I, my, my parents took me to plays all the time growing up. I loved the sound of dialogue. It sounded like music But was to it me. the dialogue of a, of a guy sitting alone full of resentment? No, oh. uh, not at all. Uh, it was the dialogue of a, of a guy who loves the sound of dialogue, doesn't have a story to tell. <laughs> right. uh, though, like, like, plot, and the, the reason that happened is because, like I said, thankfully my parents took me to see plays all the time. Yeah. Lots of times they took me to see plays 
that I was just too young to understand. Like, mm. who's afraid of Virginia Woolf when I was nine? Oh, I still can't understand it. Um, I, can, I can understand I most of it now yeah. because I've read it so many times yeah. and I love it so much. Um, but back then it was just, it sounded like music to me. Like these, these, this phenomenal phrase and these words and the musicians, the actors, right. they were incredible. Um, because I didn't understand it, plot for me has always kind of been this necessary intrusion on what i wanted like to talking. do like for yeah of uh, i just i just want to do the talking but i know i need a plot in right. order to do that uh so i stuck the piece of paper in the typewriter and i started writing dialogue and i loved it and i, I feel like that night has never ended right and what was it what was what, what were you heading towards with the jew thing here's what i was heading toward with the jew thing growing up and hearing uh, always hearing the cliche of, uh, the, you know, the Jews run everything. Yeah. And uh, the problem is that historically, the, the the problem being the Jews, Jews getting run out from everywhere. My grandparents got chased out of Russia to here. I thought that uh, America was 50% Jewish. I was shocked <laughs> when I found out that we're like 3.1% or something. Um, yes, I understand that the entertainment industry uh, uh, is uh, that most of the leaders in the entertainment industry are Jewish, that most of the leaders in the banking industry are Jewish and in media are Jewish. But those things didn't happen. Nobody stormed the gates with guns. Um, uh, Broadway was founded by two Jews from Syracuse who didn't have 10 cents in their pocket, who said, you know, if you put two theaters next to each other, they'll help each other uh, uh, sell tickets. And uh, and uh, so I've, I've never quite... Un- I, I, to this day, will once I get comfortable enough uh, with someone who's Jewish and and smarter than I am, I'll say, I don't get it. Why? Why do they hate us? Um, I, I don't really understand. This Jews will not replace us thing. Who's there are like six of us. What? Or what are you afraid of? We're running everything, Aaron. Um, and and we're frightened of guns. Yeah. Um. Uh, so uh, honestly, I. I I'd be afraid of other people. I wouldn't be afraid of us. Well, they think we're we're, we're the, the man well, behind the curtain. Of course. How Jewish were I, you growing up? I, not. Um, yeah. I, it, it, I, I have no religious education at all. Uh, the I have a brother, and so the boys in my family on our thirteenth birthday we'd have a big party. Um, but in in seventh grade, when pretty much every Saturday you're going to a bar mitzvah, or a yeah. bat mitzvah, yeah. uh, where I grew up, it was just when I was starting to get my love of theater. Um, and I would go to these bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and really regret that I wasn't having uh, a bar mitzvah. For the speech? For the speech, for the (laughs) singing, for the audience. Um, And so about six weeks before my 13th birthday, I opened uh, the local phone book and called a local rabbi and said, Rabbi, I'm turning 13 in six weeks. I'd like you to teach me the Torah. Yeah. Uh, and he said, kid, I can't teach you the Torah in six weeks. And I said, no, that's okay. I have a very good ear. You can say it into a tape recorder. Um, <laughs> he said, I don't, I don't think that's the point of being part of <laughs> um, uh, So I have... Uh, it actually uh, is the point. Uh, is it? <laughs> in middle class American Judaism, what do I, I got to learn? I don't need to know what it means. Just to, I, I guess so. I want to sing it right. But... Yeah. Um, I do come from a long line of people who got their ass kicked for being Jewish, so I uh, I, I stand proudly with them. Um, in what way? Like just what your father, your grandfather? You know, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, going back to Russia, my father my father uh, fought in World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I uh, and there are a, a, a lot of us. I, I am uh, a, a, a 
cultural Jew, a Jew for, yeah, the, right, uh, yeah. for the reasons I just told you, I have no relationship with God yeah, uh, me neither. at all. I, I don't believe things that defy the physical laws of the universe. No, I find that if you fill your days with a lot of compulsive behavior, you don't have to worry about spiritual matters until about an hour before bed. And if that's, you get to bed in a half hour, you're good. That's right. Um, <laughs> I, and uh, the last thing I, I, I wanted to... L- listen, I know genuine people of faith. Yeah. Uh, I do. And I have enormous respect for them. And I love the conversations that I have with them. And there are times when I wish I had what they had. Just like there are times when I wish I got from a cup of coffee what other people get uh, from a cup of coffee. When I hear people say, you know, once I've had that first cup of coffee in the morning, I'm ready to go. I drink a cup of coffee. There's simply no difference in the before and after. No, I need to drink two pots of coffee, and then now I'm back on nicotine lozenges, so I have to have four of these. Uh, so by 11 in the morning, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> so um, uh, true men and women uh, of faith, I have enormous uh, admiration for them. I have nothing but contempt for posers. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to that. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a there's actually when you're around those people, and I think it's part of the the uh, the gig is that you you feel a sense of grounded spiritual peace of mind. That, yes. That, that there's an acceptance of the things that are very hard to accept about being mortal. Uh, be, not because you think you're going somewhere else. It's just that's the way it is, and we're here to do good if we can. Right. They say that in the play. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. It's, it's funny because I tend to. Um, uh, not always, uh, maybe not even often, but from time to time, uh, I I will write about uh, religion. Um, uh, you know, Atticus uh, uh, in the play is devout, uh, and the play ends with uh, uh, with a quote from uh, from the Bible. Uh, Martin Sheen's character on the West Wing, uh, Bartlett, a devout Catholic. Yeah. Uh, who uh, in real ca- life too, I think. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, he, the character almost went to, uh, uh, the seminary, uh, but he met Stocker Channing, uh, and, and fell in love. So I like the, I, I, I do like the idea of it, uh, in a romantic way, but I find that the notion that, but for the 10 commandments, I would be fine committing murder or stealing or coveting my neighbor's wife is insane to me. Yeah. Well, I, it, 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 but, you know, it's weird that now, like, you see the seven deadly sins and the Ten Commandments mm-hmm. as being some sort of checks on, you know, for, uh, you know, with the commandments societal civilization and with the seven deadly sins, you know, personal, uh, uh, you know, moral decency, right? You know, I, I don't know, but, like, where I go sometimes now is the Rwanda model, where, like, you know, what does it take to trigger half a population and just start killing the other half? Right. Uh, because they think it's the right thing to do, so I, I think that that's what that's really buttressing. It's not that we would just innately start, you know, murdering people, but you know, hopefully, if it came down to it, it would be some sort of check on our behavior, societally and personally. And I, I would imagine that a couple of thousand years ago, that was important. Okay. <laughs> Uh, no, it, I, I mean it might be that, important again, Aaron. It might be important. Okay, there's a presidential alert now. <laughs> there, there sure is. But I, I guess here's what it comes down to for me. Um, I'm not I, arguing. I, I, with you. I, no, I know you're not. I don't need to believe in the divinity of Jesus right, Christ to, to believe to, in the morality yeah, of to, Jesus Christ. Right. Um, and uh, 
not knowing anything from anything, what I always imagined happened was that about 2,000 years ago, a Martin Luther King-type figure lived in Palestine Mm. um, uh, and uh, and had a lot of followers. Mm -hmm. And a couple of centuries later, in order to continue teaching to an uncivilized world, to a barbaric world, what this man was teaching, they added some magic uh, uh, to it. Um, yeah, and Jew- they, Jewish writer rooms. And Jewish writers rooms. <laughs> and they added <laughs> consequences. They yeah. added reward uh, uh, sure. for good behavior right. and punishment for bad behavior. But you, I mean, but you deal with this on a, on a personal level. You deal with the parameters of, of individual morality in a lot of the stuff that you deal with. Yeah. A lot of the stuff that you create and that you write, even if it's mundane or whether it's big. You know, whether, right. Yeah. It tends not to be about the difference between good and bad right. as the difference between good and great. Right. Um, uh, usually uh, it's about a, 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 perfect, a good person. Uh, uh, and a capable person, somebody you, you'd, you'd enjoy having dinner with. Yeah. Uh, uh, not, any, not we're not talking about you know Scrooge yeah. turning into a good guy overnight after he's been visited by three ghosts. Um, but that person generally has to put um, comfort on the line or popularity uh, on the line. Uh, he's got to take some sort of he or she's got to take some sort of risk uh, to become a great person. It's usually about. Um, how do you behave when nobody's looking? Uh, doing the right thing when nobody's looking. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that kind of thing. I enjoy, I enjoy those themes. I, I have, uh, I think, ever since I read Don Quixote. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a great one. So so you get out, you get down to New York, you give up the acting dream, you get this electric going. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, do you, what, are your, what are your role models? Like, what are your models for? Because you're writing initially plays. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the first play i wrote uh was a few good men uh I, my i my older sister uh got out of law school wanted to get trial experience right away um I, and we had been taught public service uh is important i'm the only one in my family who didn't heed that and i feel bad about that my you were taught that by your parents yeah what did uh, your dad do well, my dad, uh, everybody's a lawyer uh, except my mother and myself. My mother taught public school here in New York for 40 years. She taught fourth grade. Uh, my father, after he got out of World War II, my father really is uh, uh, the American story. His, his parents were chased here. She, he was a tailor. She was a seamstress, uh, my grandparents. He and his friends didn't like the sweatshop working conditions that she and her friends were working in, uh, and they formed something called Workmen's Circle, which would later become the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union. Uh, and it was really easy because being a Russian-Jewish union organizer back then was very popular. Uh, I mean, he got his head beaten uh, a lot. They had a son and a daughter. The son is my father. When he turned 18, uh, he enlisted in the Army. Uh, he went to, this, he lived in Brooklyn. Um, he went to a high school for smart kids who were poor, uh, a public school um, uh, and they uh, took him and they right away they put him in counterintelligence uh, and he served in both theaters in, uh, in Europe and the Pacific came back went to college and law school on the GI Bill okay so now the taxpayer has made an investment uh, in my father four years of college three years in law school here's where that investment went he and my mother would have three kids my parents were able to pay for college and law school for two of them, all on their own. 
Those three kids have five kids, all of whom are going to college. We're all taxpayers now. That investment has, they went from lower middle class to upper middle class in one generation. That's what government can do. The idea that, that government is the problem, the smaller government is, the better, that government is intrusion is nonsense. Government is a place where we can all come together. That's what government can do. So they had all these uh, kids and all this uh, taxpayer money coming in, but then they had you, the one they had to worry about. Then they had the one they had to worry about, the one who said he wanted to be a ventriloquist. Um, oh, is that where uh, that started? Do you have a doll? No, mom, you know, mom, dad, I want to be a playwright. Is uh, they, they were Look, they were incredibly supportive. They, they had to be terrified. But my sister, when she got out of law school, joined the Navy Judge Advocate General's Corps. Yeah. Um, and uh, one day she called me. She said, you're never going to believe where I'm going tomorrow. We have a Navy base in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Yeah. This was way before it was the world's most famous prison. Um, and uh, she told me this story, uh, and it gave me an idea, uh, and, it's, and, and I wrote my first play, uh, and it, it was a one in a million thing. Uh, I, uh, I was 26 years old. Uh, I, the, the play has 22 people in it. You can only produce it in a Broadway theater. It's too big uh, to do anybody uh, to do it anywhere else. Legendary producers came along to do it. A fellow yeah. who died just a few years ago named Robert Whitehead was the lead producer. Bob Whitehead produced the Broadway debuts of Tennessee Williams, William Inge, Arthur Miller, and in a stunning anticlimax, me. You did all and, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, then... I was brought out to uh, L.A. to do the movie. Yeah. Uh, this is a familiar story. I, I was going to, I've only ever considered myself a playwright. I never thought about writing movies or, or, or television shows. I watched movies and television You didn't really shows. think about it ever. Ever. Um, you I, liked the theater. I loved the theater. It's, I didn't have anything against movies and television shows. Yeah. I just, for some reason, uh, uh, it, was, it wasn't until I saw the movie Broadcast News. Um uh, that Jim Brooks yeah. wrote and directed, uh, where I was, said, "Hey, um, I love the writing in this movie. Uh, I, 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 I'd like to do that too. I wish I'd uh, I'd written this." So I went out to L.A. to do the to do the movie of A Few Good Men, and I was going to come right back and write my next play. The coming right back and writing my next play was 14 years later. Uh, I stayed in L.A., did another two movies. Then I had an idea that my agent said, you know, I think that's a television series. Um, uh, and then I did... Uh, several. Several of so them. when you uh, got to L.A., you know, with this play and, you know, with, uh, you know, I, you, you, you were aligned with Castle Rock, with yeah, the production yeah. company. Now, that must have been where the education began, you know, in terms of like, well, this is a new form. You know, I did this one thing, but, you know, you, you, you didn't have a, a history of, uh, of, of, of storytelling. No, I didn't. And um, all my friends who do what I do, uh, they're all the ones who at camp, you know, when you're around the campfire, I got a million of them. Right, uh, right. They're the ones telling the stories. I'm not like that. I, I don't have a million of them. What do you do around the campfire? Listen to other people's stories. <laughs> um, so, yes, my education... Uh, began there. It was on-the-job training. Uh, how that? How that manifest? Uh, first of all, again, I got very lucky, and the, the, the phrase "I got very lucky" could could apply to kind of every day of my life. Um, a hero of mine, William Goldman. Uh, Bill Goldman won the great Academy Award for novelist. incredible screenwriter, incredible novelist, and a great writer of nonfiction. 
too. I would recommend, and I don't get a royalty from this, I would recommend for anybody, not just people in the movie business, anybody, the book Adventures in the Screen Trade. Um, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll read it in two nights. You won't yeah. want to put it down. A book called The Season, which is uh, uh, explores all of Broadway through one season, the 1968-69 uh, uh, Broadway season. Uh, and he also has a great book called Hype and Glory. He In one year, he was a judge at both the Cannes Film Festival and the Miss America pageant. And he uses that as uh, two tent poles to, or, or hammock poles, I guess, uh, to That's talk great. about his divorce. Uh, That's great. Sounds family. like a Terry Southern book. Almost. Yes. Um, anyway, Bill Goldman decided to take me under his wing. Um, How do you like that? So he read the the play a yeah. few man before it went into rehearsal, yeah. and he said, "I think you can write movies too. Do everything I tell you to do." Um, and I've obeyed that ever since. And he's, he's still very things? much in my life. He is. Yeah, he like he wrote the all the president's men. He wrote all the president's man. men. He wrote marathon men. Listen, he wrote Butch, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. If that's best. all he had done is write Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. That would have been enough. Right? What did we say, Diana? It yeah. would have been sufficient. Um, so how does he? So this guy, he's what thirty years older than you? Yeah, or so. Yeah, and he just uh, like in, like you know he's obviously a worker. He doesn't. It doesn't seem like he has much time. He is a worker. By the way, we didn't mention one title, Princess Bride. Oh right, um, of course. And yeah. if you again. I'm I'm not in business with William Goldman. No, I, I get it. No, yeah. Um, uh, if you like the movie, uh, The Princess Bride, this second, get Go the read. book. Um, uh, the book is is it, it, it's a, such a wonderful ride. So he's brought in by Castle Rock. Castle Rock, the, this had, is a production company. Yes. I, I've been Ca- told yeah. lately that I don't explain that things. Uh, 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 yeah, Castle. Uh, at the time, it was actually a small studio. Uh, uh, strictly speaking, with Glenn, okay. what's his name? Glenn, uh, what? Uh, Glenn. Paddock. Paddock. Yeah, that's right. How oh, did you, yeah. That's that's a name for the past. Yeah. The 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 flagship of Castle Rock was Rob Reiner. Yeah, uh, was one of the owners. Castle Rock had bought a pitch. Uh, someone came in and pitched them a story based on a rumor yeah. they, that had been going around Beverly Hills. Yeah. That a Beverly Hills surgeon had conspired with a young woman to defraud a medical malpractice insurance company, um, that he was going to operate on her, screw up the operation on purpose in some non-life-threatening way. Um, the He was going to be sued for $30 million, and they were yeah. going to split the money. Well, I don't know if the rumor is true or not, but it's certainly the beginning of a great thriller. Yeah. Right? I, I, I love yeah. that pitch. And Castle Rock bought the pitch. Uh, it didn't work out with him. They, they bought the pitch, and they hired him to write the screenplay. Yeah. It didn't work out so they went to bill goldman with whom they had a relationship because he had written misery he had written the princess bride uh for them uh and they said start all over with this pitch yeah a surgeon and a woman conspire uh and he said this sounds great to me i don't have time to do it but here's what you should do identify some young meaning cheap uh some young writer who you think i'll like um and i will guide that writer through the process and uh my play script a few good men was kind of being passed around uh people were reading it and they identified me and my phone rang uh one day and my hero was on the other end aaron this is bill goldman um uh, you want to have lunch tomorrow i said sure (laughs) um and uh, i i put on like the one suit uh, uh that i owned uh i met him at the restaurant he told me to meet him at uh on the upper east side 
I walked in, and I'm telling you, before I even sat down, he said, I don't think this is going to work out. Uh, (laughs) Great opening line. Yeah, uh, and and my heart sank. Um, And he said, I I, I think you are a very talented young writer, but uh, you've never written a screenplay. You've never even written a bad TV pilot. Um, I don't think we're going to have a vocabulary uh, together. You're not bitter enough yet. You haven't dealt with it. Um, And I I thought, well, what do I do now? I mean, they haven't even brought the bread. Am I supposed to stay here? I I don't know what to do. And all I could think of was to say was, listen, I can't pretend I have more experience than I do, but maybe I can convince you that I don't need the kind of experience that you're talking about. Yeah. And by the end of the lunch, having bonded uh, over our mutual lower back problems, uh-huh. uh, he reached his hand across the table and said, I'll tell you what, we got a deal. Oh, good. Um, now, <laughs> that movie did not turn out the way I, I had hoped. It's not, it's not my finest hour. What uh, movie is it? It's a movie called Malice with Nicole Kidman and uh-huh. Alec Baldwin. Um, but while all that was happening, uh, the play had opened on Broadway, uh, A Few Good Men. Uh, and Rob Reiner came to see it and decided he's going to direct it. And then Nicole Kidman came to see it. And she called her hus- then husband, uh, Tom Cruise, and said, you should really come to this theater. There's a part I think you're going to want to play. Uh, and it-, it all came together very quickly. So now you got to write the movie. Uh, and so, yes. And so I'm the first thing I did uh, when I had to write the movie, I went out and I bought a screenplay format book. Yeah. Screenplays tend to uh, are... are format intensive like Sid uh, Field's book or, or just a it, it wasn't even Sid Field's book it was just here's what screenplay Look formatting right. is yeah and it took me like a week to write two pages um, uh, because I'm co- constantly dealing with the margins so the actual format the actual format <laughs> so before I picked final up draft or? Bill's oh, this is way before final yeah, draft yeah. Um, uh, I pick up Bill's screenplay Butch Cassidy and the Sundance yeah. Kid where he ignores all the format rules. Yeah. He comes face to face with the fact that many screenplays, or at least the way screenplays used to be written, yeah. are unreadable yeah. um, because they're not written to be read. Yeah. Uh, they are a set of instructions yeah. for the making of a movie. Right. And Bill decided, I, that's not good enough for me. I, I want the person who reads this, not just George Roy Hill and directing it, I want the person who reads this, and I want them to come as close as possible to the experience of watching this movie. So... He he makes the format much simpler. It flows. He writes stage directions that are fun and fun. I mean, you really get into the ride. Um, uh, and I called him and I basically said, are you allowed uh, to do this? Or do you have to be you to do this? Like, uh, can I do this? <laughs> yeah. And he said, throw out that format book. Don't even keep it uh, on your shelf. Yeah. Write the experience you want the reader to have. It's going to be the only time this is read. It's going to be performed after that. But write uh, the experience for the director, for the actors, for the studio uh, that you want people to have in the theater. Yeah. Wow. And that's what I've done ever since. And that was the big lesson. That was a big lesson. There have been many big lessons. Some of them are just shut up. Yeah. Uh, You know, um, uh, he's a good disciplinarian too. And some of them have been a strong pat on the back. And and some of them about story. A lot of them about story. And a lot of them simply by example. Uh, uh, you know, um, but he is... By the way, I'm not the only person who, who has this um, relationship with Bill, whether yeah. he knows the writer or not. There, well, Here's what I mean to say. There are a number of us uh, uh, that, that Bill has taken under his wing. Tony Gilroy, 
uh, uh, for instance, Scott Frank, um, uh, really fine writers uh, that, that Bill has coached up. But many, many more writers that Bill has never met that he doesn't know um, right, uh, sure. uh, have looked to him. He's, he's very much the, the dean of American screenwriting. Now, when did you decide, you know, because I mean, like, it's interesting that your, your passion starts, you know, started in theater and now you're back doing this show. Yeah. But there was some, a point where I, you must have realized that, that people don't have to necessarily talk like people talk. Right. Um, it's never been a goal of mine to, uh, uh, to have characters talk the way people talk. There are writers who, um, in, in, in visual art, the equivalent would be, uh, photorealism, uh, I guess, uh, a painter whose goal is to get it to look like a photograph. Right. Um, uh, and so there are writers who write dialogue that's meant to be photorealism that that's meant to sound exactly like the way people talk and it's not what i do i i do like writing verbal hiccups yeah. uh, and and stuttering i i like scripting every sound the actor makes right uh, uh that kind of thing yeah um but last year i i um, i directed for the first time i, I know it's great thank you very much yeah uh we were shooting a scene one day with jessica chastain yeah uh and Molly's game. It's Molly's game. Yeah. And, jeez, uh, I'm trying to think of the line now. The way it's it's printed in the script, the, the line is, um, uh, the line is, I was a brat. Okay? Uh, but the way it's printed in the script uh, is, I, 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 dot, 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 was a brat. Okay? In other words, it's, I was a brat. Um, and uh, on the first take, Jessica did it, and she was wonderful. But I told her there are five eyes, uh, and I think you're doing four. Um, and she laughed, but then she did it with five eyes. And it was, uh, it, I write like that. I'm not trying to get closer to the way someone talks. But you I'm, expect that out of the actor, too. You don't, you know, you want them to honor the... I do, but I don't need the actor... Is uh, wants to do it uh, sure. uh, that way. They're, they're doing it on their own, and they know when. And, and it's not because I it, it, that what I'm writing is so good. They want to do it that way. It's just that they're recognizing that just like the dialogue when I was going to see the plays, and, and still when I go to see plays, sounds like music to me. It's it's written that way, and in music there are strict rules. Like if something is in four four time, there have to be four beats in a measure. There can't be three. There can't be five. Um, it works uh, out with comedy too, in a way. Of course, it does. You yeah. know, yeah. Um, uh, oh, exactly where a pause has to go. Exactly where a so anyway has Eventually, to go. Eventually, I know. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, after a lot of work, <laughs> but but you started out with an instinct, right? Right. And, of and course. So, um, uh, and uh, uh, just an instinct of if I take a sip of water yeah. uh, um, uh, right here, that's going to give them the opportunity to laugh. And it's, right. it, it's putting a button on the punchline right. without going ding, ding. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a more sophisticated yeah. uh, uh, rim shot. Um, you take that instinct and years and years and years of honing it at right. 2 a.m. at Catch a Rising Star right. is, where, is what gets you where you are. Right. 
But like there, like recently with the Steve Jobs movie, mm-hmm. you know that that there was some you know uh, criticism that like this isn't really what happened, and and I was the one who said you know I was always sort of like who gives a fuck, right? And and the thing that I uh, the the analogy I make to it is that that there is a specific uh, a particular way uh, uh, there is a way that Sorkin dialogue works, right? And and it, it, for, for me the analogy was like 1930s movies. It's it, yeah, I'm it's, I'm definitely influenced by 1930s. movies. Do you know movies. what I mean? Like Hepburn and and but, Cary Grant. Sure, it's a banter. Steve Jobs. Let, you you mentioned that. Yeah. Um, and if you were to ask Steve Wozniak, uh, uh, for instance, um, he would tell you, no, that conversation between Woz and uh, and Jobs never took place, but a hundred conversations like that. Uh, uh, right. Took place. Yeah. Um, I, I, I say to people all the time, it, it's it's not meant. To, it's meant to be a painting. It's not meant to be uh, a photograph. I would never because I've written nonfiction a lot now. I would never do something that damages uh, someone. Um, I would. I'll give you an example from the Social Network and Mark yeah. Zuckerberg. Uh, the movie begins. Uh, with Mark on what appears to be a second or third date with a woman who was played by Rooney Mara. Um, and it's not going well. And uh, This is going to be the last date uh, they have for sure. Uh, um, she says something kind of mean to him uh, at the end after he has said a number of mean things to her. He goes back to his dorm room. And at that point, when he walks into his dorm room, he begins blogging. And I have, I'm writing this movie, I have his blog post uh, from that night. Uh, a night in which he gets drunk, hacks into the Facebooks or student directories, yeah. the, uh, the Facebooks of the different houses or dorms uh, yeah. at Harvard, and comes up with this website called Face Mash, uh, which compares two women side by side who's hotter, yeah. sort of a hot or not uh, thing. And he tells us how he's doing it. I'm going to use JavaScript here and, uh, and do that. Um, so I knew I wanted to start the movie with what preceded that because his blog post begins uh in the movie i call her erica it's i'm not going to say who the person is uh, in real life i'll just call her erica uh the blog post begins erica albright is a bitch um so i wanted to write what caused him uh, to say that what caused him to come up with this kind of misogynistic uh website i have him walk into the dorm room the stage direction screen direction calls for where we're just on the laptop as he walks by powers up uh, the laptop, laptop, walks out of the frame, and he tells us that he's drunk uh, in his, uh, as he's blogging. Comes back in the frame, puts a glass down, ice goes in the glass, vodka goes in the glass, orange juice uh, uh, goes in that. And over this, we're hearing the voiceover uh, from the blog post. Well, a few weeks before shooting started, uh, we found out that he was actually drinking beer that night. In fact, we knew he was drinking Beck's. Uh, and David Fincher, the director, I love... Uh, said, Aaron, you know, it's going to have to be uh, beer. It's going to have to be Bex, not the uh, screwdriver uh, that you called for. And I begged him, uh, please, the, the screwdriver is so much more cinematic uh, with the Build. ice and the stuff. And the, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a story uh, in the glass. There's a story in the glass. <laughs> and it, it reads as drinking to get drunk as opposed to a college kid just uh, yeah. thirsty. Right. Uh, uh, so I'm drinking a beer. What does it matter? Um, uh, why the authenticity just for authenticity's sake we're not doing I would never have him shooting up instead of drinking that's entirely different but we know that he's drunk 
what does it matter what he's getting drunk on? Let's do, we're making a movie. Let's do the most cinematic thing possible. I respect David. If you watch the movie, you'll see it's a beer. Uh, he was going to—I mean, it was inevitable. Uh, uh, he was going to win that argument. Um, but I, that's the the kind of um, when I say that my fidelity is to the story and not to the truth. That's what I'm talking about. Not. I would make up. No, I get uh, it. I get it. Well, it's something I made a note here. It said filling the gaps of the mundane. Right. That that like yeah. People do not live their lives in a narrative. Right. They don't live their lives right. in a series of scenes. They don't speak in dialogue. Um. Uh, the, Far less interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh. uh that, that's why we go to the movies. That's why we watch television. That's why we listen to music. And it's mostly it's why we go to the theater. Um, uh, to get what Lily Tomlin calls the goosebump experience. Well, what is it with the obsession too? Also, I, I you know thematically, if I'm going to look at everything uh, of the the you know the sort of you know pulling back the curtain, you know whether it's politics or a sports show or the newsroom or or Saturday Night Live uh-huh. or even Facebook to some degree, given right. the reality of Facebook. You the, know, I've I've been asked that question before. That hope, uh, you I know, why so. do you uh, uh, like to go behind the scenes? I always the Jobs to, movie too. Mm-hmm. I always try to come up with an answer for it, and it wasn't until recently that it occurred to me: doesn't everything do that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, w- aren't, aren't we behind the scenes in an emergency room at a, a hospital drama, or behind the scenes at a police precinct at a cop drama? I guess so. Or behind the scenes in somebody's living room uh, in a family drama? I guess I'm asking. I'm finally asking all after all these years. What's the question? Um, how, how is what I'm doing? Um, I, I'm really not being defensive. I'm honestly asking, in what way am I going behind well, the I'll, scenes I'll that's tell you. standing out? I'll tell you. Is that, you know, what's being presented to us in front of the scenes of, of say, a newsroom or the White House. I get it. Is, 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 is that's being presented as a reality. I get it. They're, right. Um, now I understand. Actually, I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I, tend, I do like writing about places where there is a facade and a behind right. uh, the facade. And I would say at the West Wing, uh, in the writer's room, that we're doing a show about the two minutes before and after what we see on CNN. Right. Um, and Because uh, that stuff should be come into question. Uh, what did we just see? Why did we just see it? And what's the integrity of it? Right. And I always... Listen, the, 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 the West Wing, um, it was a workplace drama yeah. that took place at a very interesting glamorous uh, 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 workplace where yeah. a lot of interesting things can happen drama we know is is friction it's intention and an obstacle the, the kind of friction I generally write about is is ideas yeah. uh, uh, crashing into each other the impetus behind the West Wing was uh, that generally in pop culture uh, when we write about our leaders our elected leaders they're either Machiavellian or they're dolts uh, I am a huge fan, both of Veep and House of Cards. On one, they're dolts. Uh, on the other, they're Machiavellian. A little Machiavellian on uh, on Veep as well. Machiavellian dolts. <laughs> um, but I, I want to be clear. Yeah. Those are two brilliant shows. Oh, yeah, great. Uh, yeah. Uh, brilliantly written and, and, uh, and performed and produced. So that was the impetus behind the West Wing. But, and, I, and so I wanted to do uh, a show where... Uh, they were seen as uh, very competent people who they were going to slip on banana peels uh, from time to time. But we understood they got up in the morning wanting to do the right thing. 
uh, okay, trying to work hard to do the right thing. They were going to lose as much as they were going to win, but they were going to try to do the right thing. My favorite moments uh, always on the show was when we got to see that the president is a guy with a temp job, um, that he's a father, that he's a husband, that he's a person. Um, usually. Uh, uh, usually. Yeah. Uh, yes, usually. Uh, so, you know, those moments when he's having a husband-wife uh, uh, argument, uh, I would like, or when he's being a dad to his kid, or just when he would step out on the portico and have a cigarette um, uh, because, you know, his day involved putting people in harm's way um, or deciding what fatal disease uh, research money should yeah, go to. Right. Uh, that kind of thing. I, I always like those those moments where you pull the curtain back. Yeah, the humanity. Uh, and you get to see what's behind the facade. You're right. Whether Now I understand the question. Where were you 20 years ago uh, uh, when, when I just couldn't understand the question? Uh, I, I did the same thing with a, a, you know, a cable newscast yeah. um, uh, uh, with a newsroom, same thing with uh, an SNL type show or a sports center right. uh, uh, type show. And I've done the same thing in movies. Yeah. And the thing is, is that you heighten it too. I mean, you explore the ideas of who these people are as people behind the facade of whatever it is they're manufacturing for, for you know, as, as information or entertainment or whatever, and, and elevate that. I, I enjoy writing very idealistically and romantically. Yeah, no, it's great. So, we're both uh, people that have a long history with uh, drugs. Yes. I, I wasn't sure whether to mention that or not. Um, well, what was it that, because like you were working your ass off on West Wing and, you know, you needed to get a lot of stuff done. Do you, was, were you on a, a relief pursuit or, or intellectual pursuit? As uh, efficiently as I can, as economically as I can, here's my history with drugs. I never so much as uh, uh, took a hit off a joint yeah. in high school or college. Yeah. I was 25 the first time I tried uh, marijuana and yeah. the first time I tried cocaine it happened in the same night. Oh, good night. Um, and uh, then from time to time three friends of mine and I uh, would each kick in $25 and uh, and we'd buy a gram of coke. Yeah. And I distinctly remember thinking, it's a good thing I don't have any money. Yeah. Um, uh, because if I did, this could be a problem. <laughs> and I was right. Yeah. Um, years later, and uh, and so I was uh, uh, I, I was riding high, and I I didn't couldn't imagine uh, sure. riding straight straight. Yeah. Um, uh, I couldn't imagine riding when the sun was up. Yeah. Years later, somebody would show me how to cook the cocaine into a rock uh, and smoke it. That's when the brakes came off. Um, and uh, I have to say to anyone out there uh, uh, who's listening uh, that the AA is the most extraordinary uh, uh, thing that there is. There are um, there are theologians, uh, 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 who, re- religious scholars, who believe that the uh, Bill Wilson's book, the Big Book uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous, is the most important book written in the 20th century. Uh, it's amazing intellectually spiritually mm -hmm. psychologically i've never seen something work as well as this and it's not brainwashed you're not part of a cult or anything i went to rehab i went to a place called hazelden sure um uh in center city minnesota and i went there i I didn't think this was going to do anything i I, I, I don't buy into this stuff there are fortune cookie slogans on the wall at 12 steps what are you crazy i was going to go there for 28 days bad writing 
Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, and the first thing is giving yourself up to a higher power. Yeah. I spent my entire life um, saying there is no such thing. Yeah. Um, uh, but I went there because I could hear the footsteps. I knew that I was about to get caught. Or die. Um, uh, I didn't think I was ever going to die. Wow. Um, uh, no, I always thought I can stop anytime I want. Wow. Uh, just too many people knew. Yeah. Um, uh, and I thought, uh, it won't be bad to put 28 days between me and the last time I used, but mostly I'll get a clean slate. I'll come back and I'll have earned the trust of everyone and nobody yeah. will bother me yeah. anymore. But I'm definitely on day 29. Uh, I'm, I'm calling my dealer. Yeah. Um, and somewhere around day nine of the 28 days, I just started to feel like this is making sense to me. Um, right. uh, 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 this is really making sense to me. Just the fact that I'm getting up in the morning and making my bed, showing up to breakfast, doing whatever chore I was assigned, cleaning yeah. up the coffee mugs uh, or something. This is working. I feel good. Yeah. By day 27 yeah. of the 28 days, yeah. I went to my counselor yeah. uh, and said, listen, are you sure I'm ready to go home? I can yeah. stay longer. <laughs> <laughs> I can stay longer. He said, get out. You're done. Yeah. Get out of here. But it's um, stuck, huh? It's stuck. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, uh, now, it, listen, it's it's not magic. No, uh, You know. have to work at oh, it, it and definitely. people relapse, and that's fine. The, it, I'll just give you one more commercial uh, for AA. I, I'm this all is, about it. This And by the way, you don't need a reservation or anything. Yeah. It's not scary. Just walk. There, There is, I promise you, a meeting going on right now within Everywhere. a one-mile yeah. radius of wherever yeah. you are, okay? Um, uh, and just just walk in. What I like uh, to say, and to, to protect the traditions, neither Aaron nor myself are uh, representatives of Al- Alcoholics Anonymous, <laughs> where, but right. it has worked in our lives. We, we do need to say that. Um, uh, the, the, a, a great thing about, uh, one of the many great things about AA, it, it's, it's not judgmental. If you go to an AA meeting, you're going to see somebody who's high or, oh, yeah. or drunk, and, yeah. and they stumbled in there. They, they may have had four years clean, yeah. um, and they just went out. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, they they fell out. AA doesn't say you screwed up. You you you, you screwed. Up. They, they said you did the right thing. You came back. Right. Um. Uh, you're if you're in this room. And you're you doing know the, right the thing. amazing thing is for me, and maybe I don't know. You probably maybe you had it more than I did going in. Is that when you hear people's stories, you know, there's a very specific context. Is that it taught me empathy. I think in a very real way. I know exactly what you're talking about because when you hear people's stories, you realize that it, it doesn't matter what social or economic strata you are from, that the common denominator of using their story is exactly like yeah. your story. Yeah. And um, uh, a story and in a place like Hazelden, and I think this is true for pretty much any rehab, you're not going to come in contact with anyone who isn't an addict. That's right. Um, uh, from the, the, the chairman of the board of trustees to the person who serves the lunch in the cafeteria, Everyone is a recovering addict because they're the only ones who get it. You'll hear some crazy story about how somebody took a crowbar and ripped their drywall down because when the house was being constructed, just as a joke, they hit a gram uh, uh, in there. And you'll think, I would have done the exact same thing. That doesn't seem crazy at all to me. We're all just people. Yeah. (laughs) And in imparting here, what's your hope for, for this play? Oh, okay, I'm. I, you know, I. I know I'm going to hear it when I get out of here that I didn't talk enough about. No, the you play. talked a lot about it, and it's not because I'm not incredibly excited about it. Uh, no, you I talked am. a lot about it. My first and last hope, always, yeah. uh, for anything that I write, is that you don't regret 
having spent the last two hours and 15 minutes uh, uh, in, in a theater doing this. They, they're happy that you did. I, I hope people have a thrilling night in the theater. We began previews on, on November 1st, and so far the audience the audiences have uh, responded in that way. Um, uh, laughing out loud during the first act and, and sobbing out loud uh, during the second and big, robust uh, standing ovations. They've, they've really been responding in an, in an amazing way, in a, in a thrilling way. Beyond that, um, I, I hope that people in, are able to uh, see that this that To Kill a Mockingbird is right now not a museum piece. It's not an experience in nostalgia. Um, uh, that uh, this book was written in 1960, but it could have been written yesterday. Yeah, uh, and the play was written. Yeah, yesterday. and yeah, and 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 the sort of what we're dealing with uh, on the level of the malignant humanity. Yes, uh, is is ever present. It is the more present. The now. play is very much about decency yeah. and what it is to be a person and uh nowadays i think we're all looking at that yeah thanks for talking aaron thanks so much for having me mark i appreciate it so that was uh, aaron sorkin and the play to kill a mockingbird is now playing on broadway see if you can get some tickets it's worth seeing and okay i i guess i'm gonna play i i, I don't know i i uh, my hands